Hear the word of the Lord from Hebrews 9, 19 through 28. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. Ben apparently has not learned anything from the past two years. We will see you on Christmas Eve, Lord willing. We can make no promises. <laughs> Lord willing and the creek don't rise, as they used to say. Well, good morning and welcome to Sacred City Church. My name is Justin and I am the lead pastor here. Um, last week, I was not with you. Dr. Alex did a great job preaching. I'm really thankful for him. I was in a small church plant outside of Des Moines and Ames, kind of in between those two places, about 30 minutes in between those two places, in Collins, Iowa. Now, it's interesting, that small town, so the population of Collins is 477 people. And there were over 160 people in church. That was pretty cool. God is moving in that small town over 30% of the population showed up. It's pretty cool. It was exciting. Um, for a long time, we were the only Acts 29 church in Iowa. And um, by God's grace, we've got six in Iowa now. And they've, they've asked me in the past couple of years to oversee that and to help um, spur on more church planting in Iowa. And I help coach all of the, the Iowa guys. We have... Um, Collins, Iowa, we've got Des Moines, Iowa, we've got Iowa City, we've got Clinton, and we've got Dubuque. And we're wanting God to continue to plant more churches. So we look at our society, and we're, many of us were pretty frustrated, we're pretty upset, right? We look at politics and all this. We look at our culture. And, we, and listen, here's what, here's what we need to see. Politics is downstream from culture. And culture is downstream from religion, okay? Culture is basically religion externalized. So basically what happens is as the church goes, so goes the culture. As the culture goes, that's what happens in politics. So if we wanna change our world, we have to renew the church. We have to reform the church. We have to plant more churches. And so we are passionate about planting churches. We wanna plant more churches in our cities we want to plant more churches in Iowa. And in order for that to happen, men have to feel called by God. God has to save them. 
God has to change their mind. God has to give them a new passion. Like, nope, don't go just plant the, start a new business or don't go, you know, the corporate route. You're gonna have to take some, you're gonna make some sacrifices financially. There's gonna have to be some big cost involved, but we, I have to plant a church. We need men to get that kind of conviction and that kind of calling from God. And so what I'd like to do right now is I'd like uh, to pray. I'd like us to pray collectively together that God would raise up men to plant churches across Iowa and even across our city because we wanna see a reformation. So let's pray for that. And then I'll pray for us as we jump into our preaching this morning. Father, first I just wanna thank you for your goodness. Thank you that even in the midst of a crazy culture, you're still saving people. You're still changing people. You're still calling people to yourself. Thank you for adding churches uh, across our state over the past 10 years. I thank you for the, the six um, church planters that we've got and plus Sam over in, in Moline. I thank you for the way you've called them to yourself. I thank you for the faithfulness they have to you and to your gospel, that they're planting gospel-centered churches, lights in dark places. But Father, we are, we're greedy for your glory and we want more. We want more pastors, more churches planted, more of a gospel influence across our state. Would you start a new reformation in our city, in our state, Father? Would you bring renewal? Only you can do this. So would you call men to pick up the burden and receive the calling to be of church planters? Would you do this in Jesus' name? And now, Father, we, we come to your word and we are needy. We're hungry. We want to be fed. And you don't just feed us with bread alone, but you feed us with your word that your word is life to us, that your word is light in darkness, that your word is a revelation. It's something that we would not figure out on our own. We need you to show us life, to show us eternal life, to show us salvation, to show us how we should live. So we come to your word with those, that kind of humble posture this morning. Father, I ask that you would humble me behind your word, that you would Think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords. It'd be all of you and none of me. Father, you'd bring glory to yourself that your sheep would hear your voice and a voice of another they would not hear or they would not follow. Pray that you would do this for your glory and our good this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, we are currently studying. You can see our series behind me. It's Reformed and Always Reforming. We are studying the biblical principles that made the Protestant Reformation one of the most influential movements in history. This was led by men like Martin Luther, Philip Melanchthon, Ulrich Zwingli, John Calvin, Theodore Beza, and John Knox. They brought the Western world out of the Dark Ages and into the light through a powerful recovery of the gospel and applying all of the word of God to all of the aspects of life. Now, the gospel is the good news that mankind can be saved through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, on the authority of Scripture alone. This might sound familiar to us. We've been around here for a while. We've been repeating it week after week. We want you to have that memorized, but it was not familiar in the 16th century. This reformation changed the hearts of millions of people. It turned people away from false religion and towards the one true God and his exalted and reigning son, Jesus Christ. That change reformed 
the home, the church, and it had far-reaching impact in society. It affected politics, economics, and education. It stretched from Wittenberg, Germany, to Geneva, Switzerland, to Scotland, and even eventually made its way to our shores. We're about to celebrate that with Thanksgiving. Now, have you ever heard of the Huguenots? The Huguenots, I had never heard of the Huguenots, okay? I had a public, educa- public school education, never heard of the Huguenots. Went to college, had never heard of the Huguenots. Went to Bible college, never heard of the Huguenots. Went to seminary, never heard of the Huguenots. Then my kids come home with papers on the Huguenots. Like, who are the Huguenots? So I had to go research who these Huguenots were. Well, the Huguenots were French followers of John Calvin. So Calvin was one of the reformers and they got Calvin's teaching from Geneva in Switzerland. They got his teaching down in France and they started believing it and teaching it and spreading it. Well, France was Roman Catholic and they were ruled by the monarchy, which was Roman Catholic. If you know anything about that, you know, all kind of problems that went back and forth. And the Huguenots played a really important role in France and in America. As the Reformation spread, the Roman Catholic Church and the monarch, the French monarchy looked at these Huguenots that were bringing Calvinism and Reformation faith, and they said, we have to stop this. We have to snuff this out. So they decided to kill the Huguenots. Tens of thousands of them were killed in France. They were facing so much persecution, far more than the Puritans did in, in England. They were forced out to flee so to find a land where they could practice their faith. They were looking for religious freedom, so they set out for America. Now listen, this was interesting. More than 50 years before the pilgrims and the English Puritans landed at Plymouth, the French Huguenots under Captain Jean Ribault established Charlesfort in 1562 in present-day South Carolina. Two years later, they in 1564, the Huguenots founded Fort Caroline near present-day Jacksonville, Florida. So it was the Huguenots and the Puritans who wanted, they were fleeing persecution, and they wanted to build a uniquely Christian nation based upon the principles of the Word of God and the gospel. They believed that only the only place you could have freedom was if, if Jesus Christ was at the center of that civilization. The free grace of God found only in Jesus Christ creates free people. Only in Jesus can that freedom be found. If a nation tries to build itself on any other foundation, it will only lead to idolatry, which leads to slavery, which eventually leads to religious persecution, always. They'd seen it with their own eyes, and so they fled to create something different. Now, as I've been studying for this series, I have been amazed to find how many historians agree on the impact that this, the Reformation and specifically the, the, the Calvinistic line that came out of that impacted our society and our modern culture today. If you want to read on this, I'm going to post some stuff later, but if you want to read on this, David Hall has this little book. It's just an introduction to it. It's best for probably the layman just to go through quickly. It's called The Legacy of John Calvin. And he notes 10 ways modern culture is different because of Calvin's influence upon society, because he tried to take all of Scripture for all of life. First, 
education. Did you know John Calvin was the, invented the public school? He started the first public school system. It was Christ-centered. It was free of charge. He had to raise all the support outside of the school. And by the second year, he had 1,200 students in his lower school and 300 in his college. Literally, he brought, he brought the public school system. He brought a widespread education to the Western world. Second, his care for the poor. Calvin started this, social, this advanced system of social reform in his city. There were, he was a refugee himself, fled France, and there was a large refugee population. So he started this deacon ministry that went far beyond just serving his church, that served the whole city, that welcomed in the refugee, that, ref, 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 that took care of the poor, took care of the widow, took care of the orphan. But it wasn't the way we have reformed today and, and, and just anybody could get it. They had to live a certain life. They had to, be, they had to respond to God's law and, be, and live a moral life. If they could work, they had to work. It was a very, but it, literally this changed the Western world. Second is his, his teaching on ethics and moral law. Calvinism taught that God's word, that the Ten Commandments were the center of all law and law was above the king. This, later on, Samuel Rutherford wrote a book called Lex Rex that the law is above the king. The king doesn't get to create the law. The law is above him. We could learn a little bit about democracy today. The law is above even democracy. The law is above the will of the people. God's law is God's will. Then he brought about the freedom of the church. In this, we have modern language today, the separation of church and state, but we get this from our Calvinistic heritage and it wasn't what you think it is today. It was telling the state to stay out of the church. They were fleeing religious state persecution. And so when, they, when, they, when they're, they're teaching that the king should not interfere with what we're doing what we're preaching, our doctrine, our matters. And so the, 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 the church was now freed from the state. We also get collegial governing. That means the Senate and decentralized politics. The idea of a republic came from Calvinism. We get the doctrine of vocation came from Calvinism and Luther. Luther that it's not just the pastors and the priests who are called by God. Voca means call, vocation. So you can be called to be a doctor. You can be called to be just a mother or father. You can be called to be uh, a teacher. You can be called to be a farmer. All of these are callings by God. Except that dividing wall between sacred and secular was torn down by the Reformation. Economics and profit, the idea of personal property, um, all of these things came out of Calvinism. Of course, we have the singing in the common tongue. We have the power of publishing ideas that the printing press was set on fire by the Reformation. All of this heritage came out of the Reformation. Now, when I think about that, it's kind of exhausting. You, have you ever heard of the, the term the Protestant work ethic? Protestant work ethic. That they, a lot of times people say that the, our country was founded on a Protestant work ethic. That means this reformation idea set people on fire to work, to get out into the world and build things. Now, if you could ask, or if you could get to the heart of this movement, what was it that drove these men and women to go out into the world and build things? They weren't just driven by 
a vision of their own personal success to build their own little fiefdoms, to build their own. I just want my family to be wealthy. No, no, no. They were, they were driven to go out into the world and to bring things under the lordship of Christ, to go out there and make his name known. They were called by God, they felt, to build families and churches and businesses and schools, hospitals, governments, and nations that glorified God while doing good in the world and promoting freedom. If you, now, what did that? If you could narrow their motivations down to one thing, it would be this. Surprise. Solus Christus. <laughs> Only Christ. Christ alone. Now, that is a slogan. That is a simple phrase that your kid can repeat. Hey, what did you learn in kids' church today? Jesus. Okay, that's probably right. You asked them a Bible question. What do you guys think that meant? They got about a 95% chance of being right if they just answer Jesus, right? But only Jesus or Christ alone or only Christ, it, it, there, there's a lot of stuff behind that. This is what this statement means. Jesus Christ is exactly who the scriptures claim him to be. He is the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. He is the one and only Son of God who left heaven to come to this earth to be incarnated, to put on flesh and live a perfect life in obedience to God's law, who took the place of sinners and willingly went to the cross to be crucified before the watching world only to be resurrected to never die again and then to ascend to the right hand of God where he is right now, the God-man, Jesus Christ, is now standing in heaven in the control room of the universe, moving his mission, his worldwide global mission forward through his people until the day that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. On that day, Jesus Christ will return to judge the quick and the dead and to set up his eternal kingdom on this earth. That Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords right now. That reality, that biblical vision motivated the reformers to do everything they could for the glory of God. We are not here for ourselves. We're here for his mission, for his kingdom. We're here to make his name known, not ours. That was their controlling worldview. Jesus is exalted. Every knee must bow before him. The writer of Hebrews says it like this. I'm just gonna, I just couldn't get out of Hebrews this week, so I'm just gonna spend a lot of time in Hebrews. So if you've got your Bible, you can follow along with me. Open it up. We're gonna go to Hebrews chapter two first. This is how the writer of Hebrews says it in Hebrews chapter two, verses eight through nine. It says this. <clears throat> Actually, I'm gonna start in seven. You, speaking of God, you made him, that's Jesus. So God made Jesus for a little while lower than the angels. That speaks of his incarnation when he came to this earth. 
You have crowned him with glory and honor. That speaks of his exaltation at the right hand of God in the throne room of the universe in heaven. Putting everything in subjection under his feet. Somebody say everything. Okay, it doesn't say putting everything spiritual under his feet. It doesn't say everything ethical, everything moral, everything just in regards to the church. It says putting everything in subjection under, subject to Christ's lordship. Now look at this. Look at, just, if we, just in case we miss what I'm saying here, he keeps going. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, look at this. He left nothing outside his control. Nothing outside his control. Think about that, how that changes our idea of mission. I grew up in this evangelical church that kind of, that taught that Jesus was over spiritual things and the mission of God was just to get me to pray a prayer. Pray a prayer of faith so that I could go to heaven when I die. I wasn't taught that Jesus wasn't just exalted at the right hand of God, spiritually reigning. He's physical. He's a physical body in the control room right now. He's reigning over everything and everything is to be subject to him. There is not one square inch of the world that doesn't presently belong to Jesus Christ. Every nation, every city, every school, every home, every church, every person. There is no neutrality. Everyone is either his subjects or his enemies. Jesus said, you either are with me or you're against me. Everyone is either worshiping Jesus or an idol. If Jesus isn't the center of the school, family, business, church, city, government, if Jesus isn't the center, an idol is. See, when you take Jesus out of the center, a vacuum is created, and the human heart, the way that we're designed, automatically exalts something to highest place. If you take away the law of God, if you take away the gospel, if you take away Jesus, guess what? We have to have a law. We have to have a constitution. We have to have something. We have to have something we look to. So something other than Christ takes the place and that will always be, whether it's a human philosophy, a human idea, human constant, whether it's our own ideas, it becomes an idol. This is why the, Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews says this. Look at this. Look at that next verse here. At verse nine. Or I'm sorry, end of verse eight. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We don't see everything in subjection to him, but we see him. But we see him. See, the reformers, we live, in contest, we live in a contested world, a contested globe, a contested society. And the reformers 
lived like they actually believed this. That everything belongs to Jesus and yet everything's not presently subject to him. We don't see everything as subject to him. That Jesus is exalted to the right hand of God. He is sovereignly ruling the kingdom of men and he wants to extend his kingdom through them, through their works, through their efforts. That they could expect success because Jesus is where he is and Jesus is in control, but they could expect difficulty because this world is still contested territory by the devil and those who refuse to acknowledge Jesus' lordship overall. So what did the reformers do? The reformers worshiped and worked as if Jesus was on the throne, as if his word was what it says it is, his word was true and could not fail, Hebrews chapter four, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and listen, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom, to whom we must give account. To whom we must give account. There is no neutrality. Jesus is Lord or an idol is. This is deeply convicting to me. Do I worship and work like I believe Jesus is actually on the throne? Do I expect success because he is who he says he is, but also expect opposition because the devil is also who he says he is, or the devil is who God says he is? That we're in contested ground, that people are going to be pushing back, but also people are going to be coming to faith? Do I go out in the world and work like God's got my back and if he's behind it, we can't fail? I don't know if I do. Most of the time I don't. Or am I more, I'm more tempted to believe that Jesus is somehow spiritually up there, reigning over the hearts of men, spiritually bringing people to himself and it's all just spiritual stuff. His word is only for the church. He's only kind of over the church and his only interest is the salvation of souls to take them up to the sweet by and by. Listen, we have to be aware of our history. We have received so much from our Christian heritage. Were they perfect? Absolutely not. None of us are. No human ever is, right? All of their good work is tainted with bad work. Everything we build, everything we do is. But just think about our city here. Think about what we've received from those who went before us, the Christians who went before us. We have St. Ambrose University. We have Augustana, so Augustine or Augustine, Augustana College. We have Genesis and Trinity Hospitals. Why do all these institutions have Christian names? Because Christians saw their calling from God to include the building of institutions to make his name known to the next generation and to bring every sphere of life under his lordship. Here's the dangerous place we now find ourselves. Most of these institutions have drifted away from their Christian foundations. They remain Christian in name only. 
And many Christians today are far more concerned with deconstructing their faith and deconstructing and criticizing Christian institutions than they are in actually reforming institutions or creating new Christian institutions for the next generation to enjoy. Now, most of you, some of you might know this. I used to own a construction company and I kind of got pulled out of retirement a couple years to do a project. It was during the summer and so I got to bring my young son, Javin, along with me. And we walk into this, first off, this big kitchen remodel. We walk in and everybody knows what the first day is, right? First day is demo day, right? Demo day is the first day. Now guess what? Deconstruction is easy. I gave my son the hammer and I gave him the pry bar and I said, go to it. He said, I can break anything? I said, from here to here, you can break anything. Right? And he just went at it, started ripping stuff off the walls and breaking things down. Deconstruction is easy. Construction takes a craftsman. Building is hard. Building is difficult. And every human being, every Christian human being, everybody with a God-centered worldview from Adam has, has and Adam's sin has known everything you build will be imperfect. Everything can be critiqued. Everything can be criticized. Everybody, it doesn't take any sense to point at something and go, there's something wrong with that. There always is. But it's really hard to build something of lasting value, to build something good in the world. And Christians are called to go out by God, take dominion and build. Our current generation loves to tear things down loves to point out the failures, loves to critique the religion of their youth or Christianity or purity culture or on and on and on we could go. But they don't know, it seems like, they don't know how to build anything of value. Except, of course, for Zuckerberg. Oh, Mark, he's ready to solve all our problems and just plug us into the metaverse. So we can live our best lives. This is like Joel Osteen on steroids. We can live our best life in the matrix, but we'll call it something else. The scary thing is many people will do it. You know why? Because modern society, and Zuckerberg himself has been a huge contributor to this, has created the need for it. See, soft secularism that's been pumped down our throats for decades has created what is arguably the most fearful, the most anxious, the most depressed generation in history who want an escape from their meaningless lives because there is no meaning out there in the world. It's been pushed down, postmodernism has been pushed down for decades So what do they want? My life is boring. My life is meaningless. My life, my real life is painful. I don't know how to do hard things. So what do I want? Plug me into something where I can create a reality. I can create the perfect body without going to the gym. I can just put it in my bio. I'm a PhD. Nobody knows. In my virtual world, I'm the smartest guy there is. I can create clothes. We can create characters, we can create 
virtual friendships and virtual worlds, all while sitting on our beanbag chair with our hand in the Cheeto bag. We need to see this for what it is. It's a new gospel. It's a false gospel. It's a new religion. It's created meaningless lives and depression and suicidal rates that are higher than they've ever been. And now it's promising to solve it through virtual reality. It's a way to manage fear, anxiety, and the feeling of meaninglessness that our current culture has created. Guess what? Our virtual world will be pandemic free. All you have to do is never come in contact with a real human again. You'll be safe, super safe. This, they created the problem, promised to solve it. It's a false religion. It's like being on board the Titanic and someone hands you VR glasses and you put them on and, oh, Hawaii is nice. Transported away to another world, it offers virtual life while robbing you of the only real life and the only eternal life that exists. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is completely opposite to that. It's not just spiritual. It's so visceral. It offers you real and eternal life through the real blood of the Son of God alone to save you from real sin, from real physical and spiritual death. It transports you from the kingdom of death into the kingdom of life and promises to forgive all of your sins. But all of this only comes one way, to Christ alone. And of all of the sermons that have been preached in this series, this is probably the most offensive one. Let's go back to the book of Hebrews. Let's go to chapter 9. Start in verse 19. <clears throat> verse 19. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant, that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. All right, what's going on here? A whole lot of blood. Whole lot of blood. Well, this whole chapter is a long series of things that, that the blood is meant to do. Let me break it down for you. In verse seven, he says, the blood provides access to a person. In verse 14, he says, the blood purifies the conscience. In verse 18, he says, blood inaugurates 
covenants. In verse 19, blood purifies the worship space and utensils. Verse 21, and it culminates in the only way for anyone to be forgiven of sin. What is the idea behind all of this blood? Well, it's this. Our rebellion from God, the covenant that God made with us said, if you sin, if you rebel, you will die. You will be destroyed. Death will happen. And therefore, for the person who sins, blood must be shed. But Jesus, or but God, stepped in in the first chapters of the book of Genesis, and he did something unique. Instead of killing Adam and Eve right away for the rebellion, he killed an animal, an innocent animal. He clothed him with its skin. And we see, as, it, as, as Revelation unfolds, and it progressively shows us what this means, that God speaks and says, okay, here's the idea, that I'm a gracious God, and I'm willing to accept somebody else's blood to cover your sin. Originally, it was animals, it was bulls, goats, lambs, things like this. It was offered by priests. The high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and he would offer this, for, offer this sacrifice once a year and other priests would offer the sacrifices daily for their sin. But all of that blood in the Old Testament, the efficacy was, the efficacy was found in Jesus. So it, those didn't actually forgive sins. An animal couldn't actually take your sin and forgive you or anything like that. They were all pointing, symbolically pointing forward to Jesus, the actual lamb of God who could take away your sins, the actual high priest who could enter into the Holy of Holies and take your sin and forgive your sin and cover you with blood and give you entrance and access into his presence. So we see here, this is a big principle. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The word forgiveness here denotes the act of freeing someone from something. During this time, if you experienced great financial loss, there were no bankruptcy courts. You had to literally sell yourself into slavery to your creditor until all your debts were paid off. Here, the author is saying the only way to have your blood debt that you owe God, your moral debt that you owe God, the only way to have that paid off is through the shedding of blood. That we owe this debt to God. The wages of sin is death. In the Old Testament, that could be paid through animals, but now Jesus inaugurates the new covenant and now he fulfilled all of the ceremonial law all of the sacrificial animals and all that sacrificial system, Jesus fulfilled it all in himself. Look at verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. Stop. The temple, the tabernacle was a copy. Listen, this is interesting. Maybe it's not, but I think it is was a copy of heavenly things. The tabernacle was a mini universe. And at the center of the universe, or no, the very core of it was God's presence. The holy of holies, where God dwelled, the Shekinah glory, the heart of the universe, the control room of the universe. It was a model of the universe. Okay? And guess what? It was on this earth. It still had to be sprinkled with blood. It still had to be purified. Okay? Set apart, marked. 
Keep reading. But the heavenly things themselves, so the reality that that model depicted, with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, into reality, ultimate reality, into the heart of the universe, into the control room of the universe. Jesus Christ is there, holding all things together. This is what Colossians talks about. Everything is held together by him. He is the preeminent one. He created everything with the word word of of his mouth and he's holding it all together. Christ is right there in the center of all reality. Keep going. But into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So I said it already. He's not just the Lamb of God that was slain to take away our sin. He's also our great high priest, our great mediator, our federal head, the one who takes us into the present, our representative. He brings us, we're in Christ. He brings us into the presence of God and gives us access. Keep going. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, look at this, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. I said this is the most offensive sermon of this series. Why? Because if we have one value in our society cannot be transgressed. It is any claim to exclusivity. Jesus claims to be the only way to God. Scripture claims that Jesus is the only exclusive way to find salvation, eternal life, and life more abundantly. Why? Because Jesus was the only perfect lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world and the only perfect mediator, the God-man, Jesus Christ, our perfect high priest who stands in the presence of God between two worlds, if you, have it, if you want to say it that way, and brings us into the presence of God on our behalf. Look what Jesus, the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah has done for us, dealt with sin, Set it aside. By the sacrifice of himself. He came to pay our debt. All of our past, present, and future sin. Think of it like this. God knows every single sin that you were ever going to commit in your life. And he put that exact number, like whatever the cost was, he put that exact cost to the cent on Jesus and paid for it. You have been forgiven and set free. By Christ 
alone. But I fear that we don't really respond to that how we should because we don't want Christ alone. We want Christ plus my best life now. Many of us are deconstructing our faith because Jesus didn't give us what we wanted. We had a rough go. We experienced suffering. We experienced a broken home, broken marriage, sinners in church. (gasps) And so we deconstruct our faith. When you understand your sin has been nailed to the cross, when you understand that and believe it, you can sing when all hell is coming against you. You can sing with Horatio Spafford, the man who wrote the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Oh yeah, he wrote that because everything was going well for him. His four-year-old daughter had just died. I think it was scarlet fever in Chicago. He was rich, he was wealthy. And then he lost all of his businesses in the great Chicago fire. He had nothing left, so he said, let's take, honey, let's take our four kids and let's go back to England and let's just enjoy some time in England. While getting on the boat, he got a letter saying, we need you back at the office. We need something we got to get your approval on something. He said, okay, I've got to deal with this. It's going to take me a few days. I need, you guys can go on, on ahead. I'll take the next boat, the next ship. I'll meet you over there. As they go out to sea, the boat sinks. All four of his daughters die. He thinks his wife dies until he gets a letter back saying, I alone am saved. He is in the next boat. He's going over the deep area of the sea that he said was three miles deep where he was. He knew his Their bodies were there, but their spirits weren't. They were in heaven. And he wrote in that moment, this is the moment we would be deconstructing our faith. It can't be true. Bad stuff's happening to me. The world is broken. It can't be true. God's not on the throne. Jesus is not in the control room in the universe. In that moment, his his faith went deep as that ocean. His faith went all the way down. And he wrote these words, though Satan should buffet. Though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul, with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. It's the best. If you believe sin is as bad as it says it is, then the gospel is the best news in the universe. Jesus doesn't offer you a burdensome quest to accomplish in order to have your sins forgiven. He simply says, look away from yourself and look at what I have done 
Will you believe? Will you put your trust in Christ alone, not Christ plus your sexual ethics, Christ plus your standard of living, Christ plus your political affiliation? Will you put it in Christ alone? That's the only place salvation is found. Verse 27. If it wasn't offensive before, there's verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. How dare you judge me? We judge no one. Christ judges you. And that judgment can be put on him. Your sins, not in part, but the whole, can be put on him. And he can take your judgment. But if you are too proud to put your sin on him, then you will bow before him in judgment when he returns. I know it's offensive. Or you could think of it as good news. The doctor telling you you have cancer could be the most offensive thing anyone has ever said to you. But if he's doing it to heal you, it's good news. Look at verse 28. Here it is. He says something really hard. We're all gonna die once. There is no, listen, what is he saying? We're all gonna die once. Reincarnation is a fabric of the human imagination. There is no such thing as reincarnation. Karma is lying, and you don't want it to be either. Karma is the cruelest doctrine I've ever heard. You're not good enough, he'll turn you into a fly. Oh, that's great. Sorry. It's appointed for man to die once, and then comes the judgment. But listen to this. So Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, not all, only those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. He's either paid for your sins or you will pay for your sins. Listen, he will appear a second time, certain, certain, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Salvation is from start to finish is in Christ alone. So what should our response be to this good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, for the glory of God alone? You can turn the page to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. I'm just going to read it. Give us three quick principles to make it practical here this morning, other than just believe in Jesus Christ. Verse 19. Therefore, because of everything Christ has done for us, because he's the one, one God-man in the control room of the universe, and he's, his blood covers our sins, because of everything he's done for us, the one way of salvation, this is what we have to do. Since we have confidence, brothers and sisters, look, to enter the holy places through the blood of Jesus. 
Jesus says, come with me. Come into the presence of God. By the new and living way, the new covenant, that he opened for us through the curtain. Think about the, remember the the, the old tabernacle? There was a curtain that held and separated the holy of holies. But when Christ was crucified, scripture says that was ripped from the top to the bottom. Why? God giving us access through Jesus Christ. We don't need the model anymore because reality is here and Christ gives us access into his presence. Keep going. Which is the body through his flesh. 21. And since we have a great priest, here he is, over the house of God. Look, here's what we do. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Look at this. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Remember all the utensils in the old covenant were sprinkled with blood? Our hearts have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. He's written his law on our hearts. He's given us a new conscience that we want to obey him. We want to follow after him now. He's washed us clean. So what do we do? We draw near to God through Christ. Listen to this. Jesus has given us a backstage pass into the presence of God. But it's up for us to show up. We've been given access into his presence in the control room of the universe, but do we actually show up in the morning? Do we show up and say, what does he have to say to me? Do we pray and speak with him? Do we walk and commune with the Holy Spirit? Or when we first wake up in the morning, is it Facebook? Is it social media? Is it news? Is it stocks? Is it my calendar for the day? We've been given access into the throne room of the universe, but nah, 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 I'm busy. I'm busy today. Maybe at lunchtime, maybe if I got some time, I'll get to it. Draw near to God through Christ. He's given you the pass, but you got to show up. Next. 23, let us hold fast, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Jesus is who he said he is. You can count on him. He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. He is ruling nations right now. This is contested land and everybody wants us to doubt him. Everybody wants us to pull him away, pull away from him. Hey, can I, I wanna be Jesus plus political, whatever. Jesus plus something else. No, no, no. We have to hold fast to our confession. Without wavering, we have to keep the faith. Jesus isn't like anybody else. There is no other religion on the planet like this. There is no other name under man that man could be saved. No other name under God that man could be saved. Lastly, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. What do we do? Love and good works. We want to encourage one another. Love and good works. Yes, that means making meals. Yes, that means being kind to your spouse. Yes, that means discipling your kids. Yes, that means giving financially. Yes, that means all those things. But it also means going out there in the world and doing good to your neighbor. Building good things that bless our city. Lastly, Verse 25, not neglecting 
to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more, look at this, as you see the day. ESV capitalizes day, the day. The day when the man comes around. The day when Christ comes back. We're getting closer and closer and closer to his second coming. And what does the writer of Hebrews says? Don't neglect gathering together with your Christian brothers and sisters. Don't neglect it. You bring encouragement to the body when you're with the body. We are called to come together to worship God, to listen to his word, to let it reorient us and reshape our thinking and our living. While we are here, we are in a, we are in a again, that contested world where darkness seems to be getting darker. And we come in here week in and week out and God brings us light and God brings us back to center and God brings us back to the, to the gospel. He reorients our soul. It's like our heart is a, is a thermostat that gets you know, turned up when it's out in the world and he sets it back to 70 when we get in here. Brings us back. Draw near every morning. Draw near. Hold fast. Stir one another. Think about ways to stir one another up to love and good works. Don't neglect the gathering. Why? Because Christ alone is our life and our hope. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for giving us this word. We would not know this any other way. Even now, Holy Spirit, I ask that you're moving in the hearts of your people, calling them to yourself, giving them the faith to believe in the grace of God in Christ alone. You're saving them right now. And the, the Christians who are here, Father, I pray that you're moving in their heart right now, stirring them up to come into your presence, to draw near to you, to know you and your word more than they've ever known it, to spend time with you, to pray, to commune with the Holy Spirit to stir one another up in love and good works, to hold fast to the gospel, not to neglect the gathering. Would you, would you accomplish your mission in this room this morning? We know that we need grace upon grace upon grace. And so we come to the only place that grace is found, and that is Christ alone. So we come to the table this morning, and we need more grace, and we The body is here. The blood is here. We eat the bread. We drink the cup. That this is grace to us to help us keep the faith. Would you nourish our souls through this this morning? In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.